Good morning, Riverbend. It's good to be up here this morning. I know what you're thinking. I ask myself the same question. Why does Brian keep asking me to come up here? I'm not real sure. But he is not going to be here this morning, so he said he asked me to come and preach. But he's asked me to pick up just in the book of Matthew where he was at. So if you'll go ahead and get your Bible out and start turning to the book of Matthew, chapter number 3. Matthew chapter number 3. He did the upside-down Christmas thing, and that's where we kind of pick up after that. Matthew chapter number 3. But it's good to be here this morning. Thank you so much for uh, Alex and Cheyenne for coming and leading that worship, leading us to the throne of the Lord in our worship through singing, through praise. And so we also want to praise Him through the Word this morning. We want to hear the Word and worship of God here. So let's do that this morning. Matthew chapter number 3. So let's, before we begin, I want to pray, ask the Lord to be with us, and then we'll, we'll move forward. So let's bow. Father, we come before you and we humbly bow at your throne this morning and we ask that the Word of God would be lifted in our hearts that it would be made clear. Father, make us into the people that we are not. Father, take the Word and teach us the things that we do not know. God, I would ask that you would be gracious this morning and that you would take the Word and make it real in our hearts so that as we leave, we leave drawn to you. We leave passionate for your glory more than so than when we came, that we move forward as your people following after Jesus. God, help us this morning. Be gracious to us this morning. Open the hearts of those who can't hear, those who can't see, those who can't understand. May they for the first time understand the glory and the graces of your saving power. For those who are your children, God, refresh us and renew us, renew our minds and hearts in the word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're picking up in Matthew chapter 3. Now, let's just set the stage for where we're going, okay? So as Matthew begins in the very first chapter, what we've had is we've had 400 years, right? Malachi was around in 430, 460 to 430, somewhere around there, B.C. You've had 400 years where there's just nothing happening as far as the Word of God to His people. There's no prophet, there's no revelation, there's no Word. Now, in this time frame, some really crazy stuff is happening as far as worldwide, and when Malachi is there, the Israel is ruled by the Medes and the Persian Empire. That's what's going on at that time. But as that's happening in Greece, you have people that are coming into play that you've probably all heard of. Okay, there's this dude named Socrates. You've probably heard that name, right? And he was around right around the Malachi time, maybe just a little bit after him. And, and he has a student. His student's name is Plato. You've probably heard that name. Well, Plato also has a school, and he has a student, someone who studies under him, his philosophy and his thinking, and that dude's name is Aristotle. You've probably heard that name as well. Very famous people in the Greek world, but that's all happening during this empty time, during this time where there's silence. The, Greece, the, the Greek, Greek empire is beginning to thrive. This guy named Socrates, Plato, then Aristotle, well, Aristotle has a student as well. You've definitely heard of this guy. His name is Alexander the great. People know him for his military might. People know him for his conquering ability, but he was a student of science and philosophy. The story is actually that upon his conquests, he took dozens of scientists and dozens of doctors and dozens of researchers with him, and their job was to document where they were. There was to, their job was to study geologically the different places that they conquered. So while Alexander's out there just wiping people out, He's got the scientists going, okay, now let's figure out what these people did. Who are these people? Look at all these rocks. This is great. Right? So they're just moving and doing all this science. He was a thinker. 
Well, when he comes through and they conquer, they also begin to conquer the people of God. Part of his movement bringing the Greek world into the Middle East is from Alexander the Great. He dies in 327 and the empire is divided up amongst his generals. So then you get a little less consistency as far as who is leading. You've got different people and different factions of people, different groups who are starting to do their own things based on who these leaders are. Antiochus III is a guy who takes over the area where the people of God are at that point in 198. And the religious persecution begins from Antiochus III. And there's a group of people who rise up during that religious persecution to hold the Jewish religion to what it is. They are a group of men who stand up and say, we have got to hold fast to what we've been taught as the people of God. They begin to be called Pharisees because they are separate from the culture. They have separated themselves out and they begin to be called the Pharisees. That's in 198 B.C. In 175, Antiochus Epiphanes comes in and he begins to persecute very heavily. A guy named Jacob Maccabee stands up and they start a revolution against that religious persecution, saying, you can conquer us politically, but we should be able to religiously follow what we want to follow. So there was a lot of tension between the Greeks and the Maccabees, the leaders of this revolt. So then in 160, that's in 164, the temple reopens in 164 after this revolt. That's why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. The celebration of Hanukkah is the celebrating of the temple reopening under the revolt of the Maccabees in this time. From 142 to 63, there is freedom in Israel. 142 to 63, complete freedom. They're not ruled. The Greeks not involved. They're doing their thing. But then you know what happens. In 63, what happens? Rome. The Caesars. Then Rome comes and begins to conquer. And then at that point, from in 63 and, and into the time of Christ, Rome holds. But you see that the Greek culture is still prevalent because of all those years of Greek. That's why the New Testament's written in Greek, right? For hundreds of years, they had been ruled by the Grecian Empire. Now they're ruled by the Roman Empire. In the year 40, a man named Herod was set up as king. He was set up by two guys from Rome named, named Octavius and Mark Anthony. You've probably heard those names before as well. So there's a tie here between what's happening in Asia, what's ruling the world at the time, the Greeks and the Romans, and the Bible times. And so where do you find yourself now? You find yourself at the book of Matthew, basically. And we see in Matthew that Brian already went over this real quick. He went over the genealogies, right? He told us how Abraham comes down to Jesus. One of the most interesting parts of the genealogies to me, and I never even realized this, probably until I was an older adult, is God's sovereign work and God's sovereign movement in the life of Jacob to bring about the line that would come to Jesus. Because if you remember the story, Jacob goes to work for his uncle, right? He wants to work for Rachel. He works seven years. He works his tail off for this girl, right? And then what happens? Right? We all know what happens. Not good. Okay, there's a marriage ceremony or something, and then Jacob goes in there, and because of weird Jewish tradition and his father-in-law's uh, deception and lack of LED lighting, there is no clue who he's with. 
He has no idea what's going on. And the next morning, he finds out. But I want you to think about that. This woman named Leah, who was unloved and unwanted by Jacob, would bring about the one who would be unloved and unwanted by his people. That God moves in ways that we have no clue in what we call mistakes. So very often are God taking what we thought we wanted and bringing about what he says is good. So we have the genealogy, then we get into the birth of Jesus. What an awesome story that is. And Brian preached through that. It was great. So that leads us up to where we are now. So let's jump in. Matthew chapter number three. <clears throat> we'll read down, we'll read down through, the, through the scriptures and then we'll kind of break these down and talk about them. Matthew 3 verse 1. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. and He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The Bible says in those days, so what days are we talking about? There's a gap there that Matthew leaves between Egypt, between when Jesus is a young, young child, his growing up and things. We don't know a whole lot about those things. Some of the other Gospels reference that when it talks about him growing, talking about the trip to the temple and him growing in favor with God and with man. So there's a little bit we know about that, but not much. Matthew just skips that. He goes from the point where Jesus is a young, young baby to in those days. So what do we see? We see here the beginning of something. The beginning of a ministering. Now John and Jesus are approximately the same age. Approximately 30 years old here when, they, when John begins to preach and come forth as a prophet. So we're going to kind of look at John here. There's many ways to break the scripture down. There's many ways to kind of go through it. We're just going to look at John. So we're basically going to look at John's work. We're going to look at John's witness. We're going to look at John's warning and John's worship. So let's look at John's work. What is John? In verse number 3 and verse number 4, it tells you right there what he is. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one who is crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So who is John? John is an Old Testament prophet. 
The covenant has not been changed. Nothing is new yet. So John is the last, and as Jesus would say, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He comes just like he was prophesied to come, looking just like Elijah, with his camel's hair and his eating of locusts and wild honey, his preaching and teaching in the wilderness and in those regions of the wilderness outside of the cities. Jesus would preach in the cities. John would preach in the wildernesses, right? So John comes and part of his work is to proclaim. Over in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus even says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Hmm, That's quite an accolade from the Lord. No one greater than John the Baptist. But listen to what he says. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What is he making a comparison? He's making a comparison there from old covenant to new covenant. He's saying those who are under the new covenant of Christ, those who understand and have seen and witnessed that Christ has come and he has died and he has risen and he has power over sin and death and they've been redeemed, they have such an advantage that John didn't have. Even though he was the greatest of all those Old Testament prophets. You have an advantage over that, church. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and violent taking it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied unto John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus ties in the prophecy that Elijah would come again and saying, that's John. This is the one I'm talking about. The one who would prophesy these things. Now, The imagery here for John is a herald. A herald. Like in the idea, if you watch a movie or something, you see the king is going to come, so they send out people ahead, and they say, you know, the king is coming. They got their trumpets, and they, in other words, they're telling everybody, get ready. The king's coming down the road, so whatever it is you need to do, do it. Right? Fix yourself, clean yourself, wash yourself, make things ready, get food ready. Whatever it is that the practice is, do it. That's what a herald would do. The imagery here for that, that's what John is. John is a herald for the king that is coming. What does he say? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That word, that little piece at hand means it's, it's, it's now. Like we're here. Before, in the Old Testament, you hear that the kingdom of heaven, it's coming. All right? The idea was that it will be here. John is a herald who's saying, listen guys, it's here. In the other gospels, it's referred to as the kingdom of God. Those are considered interchangeable. Many believe that Matthew would not write kingdom of God because of the old because of the Jewish tradition of not saying the name of God. They didn't say the name of God. They didn't just use it. They were worried about taking his name in vain. They were worried about overusing the, the beautiful name of God. So they didn't use it very often. They didn't say it out loud. And they didn't write it very much. Even when they did write it or say it, they would whisper many times what his name was because they didn't want to in any way besmirch the name, the hallowed name of God. So many people believe that Matthew is just simply writing heaven because he's more comfortable with that. The other gospels write the kingdom of God. But this kingdom is at hand and it's here. And so John's work is to come and to proclaim that that kingdom is here. He is the herald. He is the one who comes before the king to declare that the king is coming and his kingdom is here. Why is that important? Well, for the Jews, they're, of course, looking for a political revolution. 
The Jews, of course, are looking to be taken out from underneath all of this persecution from the Roman government and from the Grecian government before them. But even more importantly, John understands that what comes with the kingdom is the kingdom of God who will take people from the enslavement of the sin in their lives that will free them from the bondage that is sin and death and that this kingdom will bring them freedom and life to serve their king. So that's what John understands and that's what John's beginning to proclaim. So we see that in John, that's John's work. So we see that in John's witness. So let's look at John's witness. You can see that in verse number two and three. In those days, John Baptist came, came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So his witness is very specific. His message is very specific. John's out in the wilderness land. And he is preaching and he is teaching the repentance of sin. And he is baptizing people to show this repentance of sin. Now, why is this weird and why is this strange? Once again, we have to keep in mind here that John is an Old Testament prophet. This is not New Testament baptism. This isn't, have you done this, now you come and be baptized. This is not what this is. This is an Old Testament prophet who is proclaiming repentance and baptism. Now, up until this point, there was only one group of people who would be baptized for any reason. When a Gentile would be converted to Judaism to represent the heart change and the life change from being a Gentile who was pagan and followed his own way to following the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they would take that Gentile and they would baptize them. They would immerse them, literally to dunk, in water to represent the God of Abraham cleansing and washing away their sin. So we say, okay, I get that. I mean, that's fairly, that's fairly similar to what we do with believers now, so why is this weird? John is proclaiming this baptism to the Jews. Not to the Gentiles. He is proclaiming a repentance and a baptism to the Jews. Saying, you, as Jewish people, need to repent. And you need to be baptized to show this cleansing of sin. John is accusing the religious of false religion. John is saying, hey church, church people, hey church member, hey Baptist, you need to repent of your sin. And you need to be baptized not to follow a tradition or because someone said so, but to represent the washing and the cleansing of the Almighty God in your life. This is outrageous for John to proclaim to the Jews. Outrageous. But what do we see? We see that John proclaims this, and then there's Jews going out there just flocking out to him, okay? John the Baptist is like trending big time on social media. 
And everybody's like, dude, God, dude named John out there, we're going to call him the Baptist because he's baptized the people. That's not a denominational thing, by the way. Not John the Baptist, as in not John the Presbyterian, okay? John the Baptist meaning that guy who's baptizing people. John the Baptist said, that guy out there is baptizing people. we got to go out there, and people are flocking out there. Jews are flocking out there, and what are they doing? They're confessing sin. They're being baptized. They are repenting of what they are. The English word for repent does not do justice to the Greek word for repent. We call it repent. Repent comes from a Latin word, which means to be sorry for something. That's not strong enough. We don't have an English word strong enough, to be honest with you. There's not an English word that's as strong as the Greek word that is translated into repent. Because we say it's sorry. We're sorry for something. We didn't mean to do that. I repent of that. The word for repentance here in the Greek is literally spiritual revolution. A spiritual revolution. I hate so much what that is that I am going to absolutely deny that. And I am going to do it something different. And this is not a spiritual ability that we have. What I'm saying is this is a mentality. A spiritual revolution to where what I am disgusts me and I hate it and I will not be a part of that anymore. I will stand and I will walk away from that and be something else. That's the idea of repentance that is translated out of the Greek here. So what is John saying to these people? I don't care if you're sorry for your sin or not. I want you to understand and to experience a spiritual revolution within your life that your sin is your destruction. That your sin will bring upon you judgment. And you must repent. And then when you repent and when that heart is beginning to move and to morph for the Lord by His power and His Spirit, then you will be baptized to proclaim to all those around you that the Holy One has washed my sins away. That's the idea that John's preaching here. Radical for the Jews who were following law and who were doing what they were told to do and had always held to that. To a group of men of Pharisees and Sadducees who we'll see in a minute who had lifted those things up but then began to add to those things and began to take the word and began to distort those things but who were originally responsible for holding up what was important. And now John says, you guys need to repent. You guys need a change in spirit, a revolution of your spiritual identity. That is radical. That's what John preached. And people were coming. Why? The Spirit was moving and people were responding to that through the power of God. God was moving in people's lives and people were like, yes, I am a Jew. I am a child of Abraham, but I need repentance. I need my sins washed away. And that's something that I can't do. And they were going and they were doing this to show that they had been moved upon. What a beautiful thing. The representation of baptism, meaning to renounce my sin, to renounce myself, and to take up the Christ cross, to be buried like Jesus for my sin and my old self, to be buried just like Jesus was, and for me to be raised in a new, different life. Baptism 
doesn't change any person. Baptism doesn't save a soul. But anyone who is dunked in the baptismal waters in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and are raised up and are no different have not seen repentance. They are not believers. They are not regenerate. Baptism is the representation of the death of what I was and the life of what Jesus has made me. And that's what we see here. And that's John's witness. John says, we need repentance. We need to see this. Even in the book of John, not the same John, book of John being disciple John, talking about the Baptist John. John and John. John says that John is, what does he say? He says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Man, what a witness from John. And this isn't a witness from John walking around in the Bible Belt talking to people who are cool with Christianity. This is a witness from John who is blaspheming in the eyes of the people he's talking to. He is telling them that this is the Son of God. And these people would consider that a heresy punishable by death. But John's witness is strong. Why? Because he said, the one who sent me baptizing told me that this is the Lamb of God. The Bible says that his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This is what John's talking about. A communication from the Holy Spirit to our spirit that we are his. The communication from the Holy Spirit of God into our lives that we can know this Jesus. It's not optional. It's not something that happens to some. This is a requirement. The communication of the Spirit to our spirit, that this is the Son of God. This is what John's saying. This is what John's preaching about. And this is awesome. There's like a little revival happening out here because the Bible says all these people from Jerusalem, all these people in the Judea area, out in the wilderness, they're coming. They're repenting of sins. They're being baptized. Things are awesome. But then what do we see? Now we see John's warning. Let's look at John's warning. Look over and look down in verse number seven. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Man, John's pretty direct here. John ain't pulling no punches. John does not have a lot of tact in this particular moment. The Pharisees and the Sadducees come out to see, which is, have you noticed the pattern? Or you read the Gospels, man, they're always coming out to see what's going on, aren't they? Causing some trouble, being those guys. So those guys come and he's like, hey, snakes, 
derogatory term. Jesus uses the same term. Not necessarily something we would use now, but apparently then it was a bad deal to be called that. You brood of vipers, who warned you of the wrath to come? See, he's asking a very interesting question, isn't he? Who has warned you about what your spirit is going to lead you to? Who has warned you that because of what you are, this is what you face? Then what does he say? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Some translations might say consistent with repentance. The idea there is that the fruit is a witness or a byproduct of the repentance. That true repentance will be shown in fruit. It doesn't mean that bearing fruit is what brings about the repentance. It doesn't mean that you have to do something in order to be repentant. It's saying that because you are repentant, there should be fruit that is consistent with that. And John is very open about telling those guys, you don't have that. That's, that's pretty bold stuff. Then what does he say? And do not presume to say. He gives a warning to yourselves. We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Amen. Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees, very, very orthodox. Letter of the law. They've added oral law to the written law. They try to follow these things. They're very, very separate, very conservative. Sadducees are on the other side of the spectrum. They are not conservative whatsoever. They don't even believe that they'll be resurrected from the dead one day. The Pharisees live a life for eternity. Okay, in their minds, they're living for eternity. They're living for what the Father has for them after death, what the God of Abraham has for them after they die. The Sadducees don't believe in an afterlife. So they believe that following the law is something to benefit them now. So whatever I can get out of following the law now, I'm going to get it. Political gain, money, prestige, whatever, whatever I can get from it, that's what we'll do. So the Sadducees are in with Rome. They like the Roman guys. They're cool with them. They go out to eat. They're all fine with the Romans. Pharisees don't like the Romans. And the Pharisees and Sadducees are button heads constantly about what they believe theologically. But here's one thing they all agree upon. What's this guy John doing? He's out there baptizing these Jews. What's going on? Let's go see. Let's go to the tent revival and see what's going on. Right? So they come out to see. And John says, Ha! The religious people. This is the equivalent of us being in this room preaching the gospel and repenting. And, and then all, the, everybody, all the, the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention walk in. And then I call them brood of vipers. Not that I would do that. I'm just saying. That's the idea. All the religious people, all the religious leaders come walking up and he's like, stop. What do you need? But what is he trying to warn them of is the question. What is John's warning to them? And if this warning isn't so applicable to today, I don't know what else is. Because here's what we see. The United States of America and the anomaly of a Christian nation Okay, which very few, if any more, have ever existed in the history of mankind. A nation that identified themselves as Christ-following. I don't even know if another one's ever existed. I'm not a history buff. Maybe somewhere out there. But America seems to be kind of an anomaly in that. Most Christians you see walking in societies that aren't Christian. 
The, the, the Christians in the New Testament were walking in a society that did not agree with them. We have gotten used to, in our world, living in a society that basically has been okay for the last 150, 200 years with what we do. And there's a direct comparison to the religious people of the Jewish identity and the religious people of an American identity. What is that very, very easy comparison to make? That many, many people walk within those identities based on the culture of that identity. I'm a Jew because my daddy was one. And my mama was one. And Papa and Mimi were one. And so I'm a Jew because they're Jews. I have Abraham as my father. I'm directly descended from the, the Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. I know my Bible. And what do you run across every day in America? What do you run across every day in American churches? Well, sure, I'm a Christian. My mom and daddy's members right down the street. Right? A cultural Christian, a person who identifies as a follower of Jesus simply because they have grown up in a culture that identifies as followers of Jesus. Pharisees, a culture of Jewish religious leaders who have simply grown up in a culture of Jewish leading religion, who don't know God, who are not children of God. They are definitely children of Abraham, that's correct. But you are not necessarily a child of God because you're a child of Abraham. And that's exactly what John says. Don't think. Don't be fooled. Don't be confused, Pharisee, that because you are born into the family of Abraham, that that means you are right with God. So therefore, the same warning must go out to us, church. Do not be deceived. Do not think that because mom and daddy was a Christian and you grew up a Christian and you went to school, you went to Sunday school and you went to church and you went to youth camp and you did all those things. And based on something that your mom and daddy told you that you did, you're a Christian. I'm not here trying to make you feel bad about yourself, but what I am here to do is to give you the same warning that John gave. That none of that means anything before the throne of God. That when you get to heaven, if your identity is in the Christianity of your parents, you will be judged for eternity. You will be condemned for all of eternity. If your identity is in something that your mama and your daddy told you you did when you were five, you will be judged for all of eternity. Because none of that means anything before the throne of God. Our identity is not in things we do or in where we're born or in who we're born to. Our identity as people of God is in the saving work of Christ himself, the one who came and redeemed. And that's what John's warning them of. He sees that they are law keepers, that they are orthodox, that they are conformed to what they're supposed to be. But he says, don't think that Abraham, because Abraham's your father, that you're a part of the kingdom. And what does he point to? He points to the awesome plan of God when he says, God can raise up from these rocks children of Abraham. And that's exactly what he does, doesn't he, by the way? <laughs> he raised us up from that stone of flesh, that stone, that heart of stone, 
He made us the children of God. Amen. That's a great reference. I like that reference. He can make these rocks the children of Abraham. The family or heritage mean nothing to God. What does he say? Keep reading. Even now the axe is laid to the root of those trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Then John says, listen, I baptize you with water for repentance. But the one who is coming, he is mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. And he will baptize you with something very different. The Holy Spirit and fire. It's not a charismatic reference, guys. What is he saying? That Jesus has come to be two things. We always want to sit around and focus on what Jesus, one thing, became, he came to be. But John is making it very clear, and it's very clear throughout the New Testament, that Jesus came as two things. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes as Savior. He comes as the one who can take, no matter who you are, no matter how stony your heart is, that can raise that heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh and baptize you in that spirit to be his. Jesus is the Savior of man. And he has come to redeem. He will baptize with spirit. But the second aspect of Jesus coming is to baptize with fire. Jesus is not just Savior, Jesus is judge. And he will baptize with fire. And we see the picture right after that that he describes what he's talking about. In his hand is a winnowing fork. And he will clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. He has come to separate. He has a winnowing fork which picks up the grain and lets the chaff fall. The grain is worthy of keeping. The chaff is worthy of destruction. He picks up the grain and that's what he keeps. And then he gathers all the chaff that has fallen through the fork and he burns it with unquenchable fire. Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Judge. And no amount of heritage, no amount of church going, no amount of what you have grown up as will make any difference when he picks up the winnowing fork. But John understands that repentance and belief in this Holy One that is Jesus, in the King that has come, and the life-changing and spiritual revolution that comes from knowing this Christ will bring forth grain into the harvest. That they will bear fruit that keeps with repentance. That to know Jesus Christ and for Him to know you, rather, is a blessed thing and a wonderful thing. But that it has to come with a warning. It has to be understood that Jesus Christ has come with the winnowing fork. But we don't leave ourselves there. We don't, John doesn't leave us there. Because amongst those people who he is talking to at that moment, 
which is Pharisees, Sadducees, and people who are heart of heart. Remember what is amongst them. What is amongst them are people who have come and they have repented of what they are. And they're being baptized in that repentance. They're being understanding that their sins have been taken away. And John is preaching to them that here comes a Jesus who will change everything. He's going to change this covenant. He's going to change this baptism. He's going to change your redemption. He's going to bring the Holy Spirit with him who will live within you and give you an advantage that John did not have, which is God in us. What an amazing thing to be able to say, God lives in me. We don't understand what a blessed thing that is. That God lives in me. Amen. Very last thing we'll look at is John's worship. I want you to see that within, the, that within this whole context of John's witness and his work and his warnings, that he is worshipful of this Christ who will come. In chapter 3, verse number 11, what does he say? He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, he is mightier than I, and I am not even worthy to take his shoes off. Think of that worshipful attitude that John has. And those are a, that's a pattern in our Christian lives, is recognizing the holiness and the might of an almighty God, which then results in a humbling, worshipful attitude of that God. I encourage you, brothers and sisters, if you are struggling in your worship, you need to focus and meditate and read and pray about the holiness and the might of the God that you serve. Because understanding His might results in the humbleness and repentance that you see in John. He is mightier than I, and I'm not even worthy to take His shoes off. See the humility there? Within the understanding that God is great and that Jesus is mighty? He says the same thing in what we, we looked at before. In John 1, he said the, basically the same idea. He says, and John bears witness. He says, I saw the, the Spirit descend, right? But what does he say? He who you see the Spirit descend upon and remain, this is he who baptizes with that Spirit. And then what's his proclamation at the end of that? So because I've seen that, I have seen and borne witness that that's the Son of God. That he is not a prophet, that he is not a teacher. He is God himself. And John's worship through understanding who Jesus is. As we understand who Jesus is more and more, what happens to our worship? It thrives. It's more and more. As we see the might and the power of God in our lives, you look in your life and you say, God moved and he's working and I see what he's doing in me. He has made me a repentant person. I'm not perfect. I don't do everything I'm supposed to do, but my heart of heart yearns for him because he is great. And then what happens to you? You begin to worship and praise that God. You begin to give glory to the one who has helped you and made you see his might and his power. As we move forward today, I want you to identify with something in this. Maybe we don't identify with John's work because we are not prophets. But these other aspects of John, we can identify with 
Do we identify to John's witness? That's the Son of God, and I believe in Him. Do we identify with John's warning? My identity doesn't necessarily rest in Jesus. It might rest in the Christian culture. It might rest in being a Baptist. It might rest in church identity. And that that needs to be different. Do we have a comparison? Do we have a way to identify with John's worship? That the same God who has called me to himself is so much mightier than I. And I will bow down and worship him. It's amazing that when you think of the might of God, how different you might say in all the earth will shout your praise. My heart will cry and these bones, they will sing. Great. Great are you, Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we come and we ask for repentant hearts. Father, we ask that when we, as we struggle with repentance, we ask that you would grant repentance. Father, we ask that where we struggle with sin, that you would grant forgiveness. Father, that where we struggle with all of these things, that you would grant us and give us spirit help to make us into what we are called to be. And Father, we recognize that your power and your might are so much greater than any of our sin. That there's nothing we have done that is greater than what you've done. And so, Father, we ask that you would move upon us and move upon our hearts for the glory of the kingdom that is at hand. We thank you for these things. In Christ's name we pray. Church, if you'll stand. The altar is open for any type of response. If you need it, it's not necessary. It's not something you have to use. If you'd like to use, it's open for you. As Alex leads us in song.